This morning in uh, Confirmation, which meets before church on Sundays, The class talked about the birth narratives, the Christmas stories in the New Testament, and uh, we reminded ourselves that there are only, there are four Gospels, but only two of them take the time to tell the story of Christmas, and we believe in the biblical world that both of those birth narratives, as we call them, those Christmas stories, were actually added last. They're the last things added to the Gospels, though we read them first, and that all four Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John really begin in the sense of chronological development with the appearance of John the Baptist. So this morning, in the Gospel of Luke, which has a birth narrative preceding the start of the Gospel, you would say, we're going to be looking at the third chapter starting with the first verse of the introduction of John the Baptizer. Listen now for what the Spirit is saying to you and to the church today. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. John went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. May the meditations of our hearts together upon your word today be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A couple of days ago, we um, had to say goodbye to our more than 15-year-old beloved dog, Golly. Um, It's a tough time for our family, but of course, we're greatly privileged to have had her and loved her for so long. Uh, We got our dog, Golly. Uh, Never let a three-year-old boy name a dog, Golly. Um, When we had a six-month-old colicky baby, I don't know what we were thinking. Uh, And it was a great choice to make, even though it was a bit of a roll of the dice at the time. And you know, when time is short, it's amazing how suddenly we see things clearly. Saying goodbye is like that, whether it's to an animal or a human being whom we love. But it's also leaving a job or any relationship, of course, at the end of a life when you know you won't see someone again for a long time or ever, it's amazing how all the petty grievances and annoyances, even the big hurts and disagreements that you had with that person just seem to fade away. None of that matters anymore. Perspective is suddenly much easier to get and 
All you want to do in those moments is to say what's on your heart. You may not get another chance. Here's what I mean. I read a story recently out of England about a couple who, like my parents, uh, weren't able to have children of their own. And this couple, like my parents, spent a long time on a waiting list to adopt a baby. They were scrutinized and evaluated and home visited all over the place, like my mom and dad were, while they waited and waited and waited. Finally, the call came, and the couple went up, went to the adoption agency to pick up their six-week-old baby boy. They were ushered into a room where their new son was lying in a crib. On a chair beside the crib was a brown paper bag filled with a change of clothes and two envelopes with letters inside. One of the letters addressed to the adoptive parents thanked them for providing a home to this mother's baby and acknowledged that according to the terms of the adoption, she and they would never know each other's identity. Then the letter concluded with a request. Would they allow the boy to read the second letter on the occasion of his 18th birthday? The couple, agreeing to her request, entrusted that second letter to their attorney because one day their son, as a young man, would read the message that his birth mother wrote him and left for him that day, a message she probably wrote with a breaking heart, with love and with sorrow, as she parted from him for the last time. I wonder what she wrote. If I had to condense everything I feel about life and love or that I feel about a particular person into a few words, what would I say? If this was my one chance to share what I'd learned and how I really feel with my children, for example, or with anyone important to me, I wonder what I would include and I wonder what I would leave out. What would you say? Well, that's what's happening here in this text this morning in this famous Advent reading from Luke's Gospel. John the baptizer is a lot like that birth mother in the story. John is sending us a message, a message he has nurtured and cared for, but which he is now passing on to someone new. John in the desert, John the Baptist, not John the Lutheran or the Presbyterian, John the Baptist reaches out to us in the great tradition of the Hebrew prophets and speaks to us because he knows that change is coming. He knows that someone new, something new is coming, and John knows that his time is running out. It is at an end. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Luke is the one gospel writer who likes to locate his gospel story in the historical record. So we get a lot of uh, coordinates that help us remember and know when this happened. In the reign of Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and a bunch of other people were in, the, in place historically, the word of God, Luke tells us, came to John, who went into the region around the Jordan River, proclaiming, announcing, speaking. And I find it interesting that all four Gospels start with the word proclaimed from John the baptizer. A word from John the Baptist. Take a look at all four, Luke John, Matthew, and Mark, and as I said earlier, they start, two of them, Matthew and Luke, with birth narratives, but we feel like those were added on later. 
A great person has to have a great birth story. And so it's written usually later and appended to the beginning of the narrative. We're pretty sure, as I've said, that the gospel proper, the original story of Jesus, starts with the spoken word from John. Just as the book of Genesis, the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, starts with the whole universe being created by the spoken word. And in both cases, that word brings life from God. A voice crying in the wilderness, the wilderness of COVID, the wilderness of uncertainty, the wilderness of relationship stress, the wilderness of illness, anxiety, worry. Prepare the way of the Lord, the message comes to us, wherever we hear it. That is John the Baptizer's essential job and purpose. He announces the arrival of God, the advent, the coming of new life. And our job, before we put up our trees and get too caught up in Christmas carols, is to listen again to that message which he gives to us in these days before Christ's coming, and to allow that message to let life be born again through us and in us. To do that, we have to focus, because it's hard sometimes to understand and really get at the messages we've heard again and again and again in our lives. My kids roll their eyes when I talk to them sometimes, and I know they're not listening. But we have to focus today and not allow what we want John to be saying to obscure what he really wants us to hear today so that we'll be ready for Christ to come in this particular historical moment and in our lives. We've heard John talking to us before, and as I said, when you've heard something enough times, you sort of stop listening. But we don't want to be so stubborn or unwilling to hear what John is saying to us that we miss the message of Advent, because that message is crucial for Christmas to really arrive as it's meant to. Maybe you've heard the story of the... uh, naval battleship in World War II, one night late in the war, near sort of the end of 1944, in the Pacific Theater, the forward watch on a USS battleship uh, spotted a light up ahead that appeared to be heading straight for the battleship. So the battleship sent a radio message, unidentified ship, you are on a collision course with us, change direction, 10 degrees starboard. The reply came back immediately, no. You need to change direction. The battleship again sent an urgent message saying, this is a United States warship. Change your direction 10 degrees starboard. And once again, the reply came back, no. They woke up the admiral who was sleeping in his berth. He came to the bridge. And again, the battleship sent now an authoritative urgent message, again repeating, this is a warship on official maneuvers. You are ordered to change direction. Signed, Admiral Peacock. The moment came back in the message, no, you change direction, signed Seaman Smith, keeper of the lighthouse. (laughs) It's easy to blame circumstances or others for our anxiety, our unsettledness, and we want change to come, we want Christ to arrive, but too often it's us who need to change course to listen, maybe for the first time. Too much of the time we hear without really 
listening. We hear words from John the Baptist year after year about change that is coming. But there is no part of us that we'd really consider moving or changing to really be prepared for what is to come, what's promised. The clear light of God's word never changes. For us, change is the task, is the calling. And the word that John the Baptist is giving to us this morning, I think, as I look at Luke's passage in uh, verse uh, in chapter 3. And by the way, notice that Luke doesn't talk about what John was wearing or what he ate. Luke isn't interested in John's attire or his diet. He's interested in the message itself. And that message has two parts, as far as I see it. The first is that John proclaimed to us, to the world, a message of repentance. We'd like to skip that part. Repentance simply means, especially in the Jewish tradition out of which it comes to us, change course, change direction. The Hebrew word is shuv, turn. Just turn. Don't be paralyzed or imprisoned by guilt or shame. Just change your direction. Get back on track. For Christ to come, this change of direction, as far as I can tell, is not easy. As the Malachi passage, which Amy read today so well, reminds us who can stand the coming day of the Lord, who can stand in his presence. It is not easy to change in order to welcome Christ, but the, the changing, the repentance, the shuv, the reorienting ourselves into the new and better direction, as far as I can see it, it really has four steps to it, sort of four sub-steps. The first is for us to face the truth about our lives and what we have done and left undone that has caused damage or hurt to face the truth of what we've done and why we've done it. The second is to take a look, a hard look at that damage. If we've hurt or damaged someone, is to hear the pain that it has caused to others, even to ourselves. The third is to commit ourselves truly to not repeating that damage or that hurt or that behavior again. And finally, the hardest part is to live into that promise and that commitment to really change direction, not for a couple of weeks. They always say uh, in January, uh, memberships at health clubs really shoot up. And by March, they're still paying for those memberships, but they aren't coming anymore. The four steps are to face what we've done, to acknowledge the damage we've done, to commit, to commit ourselves to not repeating that action again, and then to live into that commitment, that promise, to live and move in a different direction, to not repeat what we have done again and again and again. John the Baptizer wants us to know that repentance turning into a new direction is possible. If it is rare, it's still very possible, and that change can happen. I uh, found a book by an author who had an awesome name, Buster Benson, wrote a book with a great title. The title of the book is, Why Are We Yelling? And in the book, Why Are We Yelling?, Buster Benson says... A mind is more like a pile of millions of little rocks than it is a single large boulder. To change a mind, we need to carry thousands of little rocks from one pile to another, one rock at a time. This is because our brains don't know how to rewire a full belief in one big hall. New neuron paths aren't created that quickly. You might be able to get a tiny percent of someone's mind to rewire to a new belief or a new direction in a given conversation, but minds and therefore behaviors change slowly. 
So preparing the way for Christ at Christmas, repenting, reorienting ourselves, getting back on the right track and going in the right direction at Christmas is exactly the same as preparing to have God come into your life in any moment or God to come back into your life. It takes little baby steps one at a time. It doesn't happen normally all at once. And the first part of John's Advent message to us today, to you and to me, is to repent. Take responsibility for who you are, what you've done, and then go in a new direction. It is liberating. And the second part of his message this morning is to believe that those baby steps and you changing your life can change the world. Fred Bigner says, to repent is to come to your senses. It is not so much something you do as it is something that happens. True repentance spends less time looking at the past and saying, I'm sorry, than to the future and saying, wow. Have you ever been excited about repentance like that? The Lucan scholar, expert on the Gospel of Luke, R. Allen Culpepper, says about this passage this morning, The redemptive events that begin with John the Baptist in a remote corner of Judea were, by God's design, the beginning of the fulfillment of God's concern for the salvation of all flesh. Repeatedly in Luke, we find this theme underscored. Our human tendency is to limit God's activity to our own kind of people and to the causes and socially and ethically important directions important to us. But God's concern for all pushes us to break across the boundaries we set for it and the boundaries we put on God. And Anne Lamott, another one of my heroes, wrote, we can change. People say we can't, but we do when the stakes or the pain is high enough. And when we do, life can change. So John wants us to know this morning that there is hope in this broken world, in the middle of this pandemic, in the middle of all this uncertainty, the heavy weight that we're all living with today. But it starts with us, with me and with you. Michael Jackson was right. I'm looking at the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. I'd like to end with a story which illustrates what I mean. There are co-authors of a book titled How, uh, Switch, How to Change Things When Change is Hard. The co-authors are Dan and he, uh, Chip Heath. One is a professor at Stanford, the other a professor at Duke. Not a very bright family, apparently. Um, and the book, Switch, How to Change Things When Change is Hard, uh, is filled with amazing stories of people, some without very much power at all, without much money, without much leverage at their disposal, who despite all this were able to create huge changes in their businesses, in hospitals, and in the case of the island of St. Lucia, the St. Lucia parrot. In fact, they infected change, the change happened there across that entire island nation. You see, the St. Lucia parrot was almost extinct. This beautiful parrot has a green head and a blue body with a red breast. Or maybe it's a blue head with a green body. Anyway, it's beautiful, very brightly colored. And due to habitat destruction and hunters and poachers, 
in the early 1970s, there were only 100, even fewer than 100 of these beautiful birds left on the island of St. Lucia until the head of the St. Lucia Forestry Service hired a man named Paul Butler, who had just completed uh, his university training in the UK, to fix the situation. Butler's job was simple. With a budget of just a few hundred dollars, no real connections, no real political power, he was asked to save this beautiful bird from extinction when most of the St. Lucians at the time were more interested in eating the parrots than saving them. How did he do it? How could this guy from England possibly get an entire island nation to go from apathetic to fanatical about saving this heretofore uncared for parrot? Well, with this few hundreds of dollars, he got the St. Lucians to affirm the fact that they were the kind of people who take care of their own. He, uh, he organized parrot public events. He distributed St. Lucia parrot t-shirts. Butler cajoled a local band to write songs about the St. Lucia parrot. He convinced hotels to print up bumper stickers advertising the St. Lucia parrot. He had volunteers dress up like the parrot and go into grade school classes to teach the kids about the parrot. He even asked pastors to preach about the parrot using relevant stewardship-based scriptures and our call as God's people to care for creation. In short, Paul Butler was able to convince the St. Lucians that this parrot was part of who they are, part of their identity, and as part of their identity, they had to protect it. And when he had generated that public support, it made it possible to pass into law the changes necessary to preserve the St. Lucia parrot, the population of which rose from 100 in the early 70s to 500 by 1980. And now I think there are a little over 700 of these uh, endangered birds still living in the wild on St. Lucia. A change of identity led to real behavior change and real change in the world around us. That's the treasure, that's the message John is passing along to you and to me and to all of us today on this second Sunday of Advent. We want Christ to come, we want change to come, we need God with us, we need forgiveness, we need hope, we need joy, but we have to turn and we have to take those hard baby steps to prepare for his coming. And when we do, when we make his paths straight, Emmanuel will indeed come to us, be with us, just as he'll be by the power of the Spirit with us in the Lord's Supper here today. May it be so. Amen.